Now hear this, now hear this. Due to the failure in leadership demonstrated last week by the complete lack of preparation for Quanticamp, the Quantagon has promoted a new training commander. The executive officer for week five of Quanticamp is Dr. Rebecca Brock, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Commander Brock will demonstrate proper leadership skills through her navigation of a discussion of how one might increase quantitative training and research rigor in your home department or research unit. Carry on. So Greg, I got another series of texts from you this morning, starting at 5.31 a.m. It's a little late for me. First, that was two hours before my alarm even went off. (laughs) Second, notice Mm -hmm. I said a series of texts, and so you hammered me relentlessly. And third, it still doesn't differentiate whether you're on the East Coast or on the West Coast. Now, (laughs) given that Mm -hmm. you do not appear to be curled up in your nephew's bunk bed, (laughs) I am guessing you're on the East Coast. Is that true? It is true. I made it back after a series of flights. took me three flights to get back. Fortunately, I had entire rows to myself on the flight, so it was lovely. But yes, I made it back, and it doesn't matter. I would have been texting you at that time anyway. In fact, by the time you woke up, I'd already sent you those texts, and I had walked around the three-mile lake next to my house, and you were still sleeping. It's really nice when you have all the rows to yourself, because you're still flying in a sealed aluminum tube. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't fly much as a kid. My parents were high school teachers, and we were not globetrotters. But early on, my very first flight, they still allowed smoking on airplanes. Oh, yeah. And it was, COVID reminds me of the smoking Mm -hmm. section on the plane and the non-smoking section on the plane. (laughs) Where you still remain in a sealed aluminum tube. The magic wall between smoking and non-smoking. Exactly, and so I'm glad that you were able to stretch out while you inhaled the COVID-19 modules that were circulating in the aircraft. So I've been looking at you the whole time, and you're being very polite to me. I can see you smiling, but your smile does not extend to your eyes, my friend. Are you sad? What's going on? You are right. Mm -hmm. I don't care what your wife says. You are capable of recognizing emotions in others. Thank you. Did we record that? (laughs) Yes, we did. Okay, that's my new ringtone. I am sad and a little upset. It happened about 20 minutes ago. I was making coffee and listening to NPR. They announced Mm -hmm. the start of the new baseball season. Yeah, like 60-game season or something? 60-game season. I am very appreciative of your patience when I talk with you about baseball. I love baseball. You took me when we were in Baltimore. You pretended Mm -hmm. to be a structural engineer and got me into Orioles Stadium, right past the security. We walked through the security gate while you were telling me about the structural integrity of the stadium. And they just let us walk right in. They let us walk right in and down to the field. It's because I had some papers in my hand that I rolled up as if they were plans, and I was using them to point to things, and they just waved and us they right were you were holding a conference handout from a poster uh-huh. that we had gone to, and uh-huh. you rolled them up and pointed them to talk about the structural integrity of the upper deck and walked right in. But yes, I listened to NPR, and it went from joy to abject sadness. There will be a 60-game season. It will start in July. And then Tom Goldman, who is my hero at NPR, said, yes, and among the rules is the National League would be incorporating a designated hitter. Now, for those of you who follow things such as this, this is heartbreaking and devastating and makes me very, very sad. One of the worst rules in all of Major League Baseball is Rule 511. And Rule Mm -hmm. 511 was implemented in 1973 and established that in the American League, the pitcher does not have to bat. They can replace the pitcher with a, ergo, designated hitter who plays Mm -hmm. no position. He just goes out, swings the bat, and goes back and sits. And this is an abomination to the tradition of baseball. And the National League does not use a designated hitter. And yet Mm -hmm. here we sit. So this is going to be a difficult episode for me. If you need a moment at any time during the episode, you just have to say so. And we'll, we'll let you grieve. 
Can I okay. use a safe word? <laughs> Do you, I don't know that you want to tell everybody what your safe word is. It's... <laughs> okay. So speaking of the episode, yes. you may recall from last week that I sent you a detailed outline of what the episode would be, and you didn't get around to opening it. Do you recall that? <clears throat> I do recall it, and I still see it in my inbox with the little <laughs> sim- symbol next to it. So yes. We ad-libbed an entire episode, and mm-hmm. given you were flying east and west and east and west and east and west in slow increments across the country trying to get back home... Mm-hmm. I made a decision without consulting you, Uh, which is I thought we could subcontract out show content. Okay. I am very excited to loop in a self-identified, I would not want to identify her in this way, a self-identified fan of the podcast named Rebecca Brock. She is a newly minted associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. She goes by Becca to friends, and so we need to call her Rebecca, I guess. <laughs> Maybe by the end of the episode. Maybe by the end of the Maybe. episode. Maybe. We'll see. If, if she doesn't okay. use her own safe word. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> she and I had a nice email exchange in that she is a substantive researcher. Mm-hmm. I actually pulled up her CV, and she is what Google Scholar would refer to as a kick-ass substantive researcher. She has nice. like Brock et al., Brock et al., Brock et al., Brock et al. It is deeply impressive. She got a PhD in clinical psych from University mm-hmm. of Iowa, and she postdoced at University of Iowa. And she studies, broadly speaking, and I will let her speak to this, of uh, family relationships and how they affect mood and anxiety disorders and children and family dynamics, very cool stuff. But Mm -hmm. she and I had some email exchanges about if you're a quantitatively oriented researcher in a department, how do you work to use limited resources to up the game in terms of teaching quantitative methodology and increasing rigor in your department as a whole? I thought, why not bring some talent in to try to replace us Uh and let her dictate the show. And she read the emails in this email exchange that you sent? I'm thinking not. Yeah, okay. Then I like her already. I knew that you were kindred spirits. And so, Uh Becca, welcome to Quantitude. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So we know we like Becca already because in the background of her Zoom video feed is a detailed Lego rendition of Hogwarts. Now, Greg, you're the Harry Potter, I was going to say weirdo, but we'll go with aficionado. Yeah, you're the odd one out here. You're the muggle, buddy. That's what that's what our people would say. You're the muggle here. It's a little harsh, not, but Not okay. even a squib, which you probably don't know what a squib <laughs> is. So, Do you two want some time alone? Is. I can come back later if you'd like. <laughs> we're good. Yeah, we're texting back and forth about <laughs> you right now. But Becca, I hacksawed through a very brief introduction of you. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got into this place of, according to Google Scholar, being a kick-ass researcher, but also having a deep respect for quantitative methodology. Sure. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that very nice introduction. I think you hit on kind of the main things in terms of my journey to getting to where I am right now. Uh, I'm a trained clinical psychologist. I completed my graduate training at the University of Iowa. And um, while I was there, I was very fortunate to have mentors who emphasized the importance of having a lot of statistical tools in my toolbox. So knowing that I would have these tools to then be able to pursue my substantive research questions. And because of that, I really tried to capitalize on seeking out training that was offered uh, by the university. I went to a lot of workshops that were being offered um, nationally. And I feel like that really helped me to hone my skills and in a lot of ways enriched my research program because I became aware of what are the kinds of cool questions that I can ask and what are the tools that I have available to answer those questions. So I was really fortunate to have that kind of mentorship structure and to have people encouraging me to seek that out, even if some of those opportunities weren't necessarily available in the department that I was in. And how were you foolish enough to start listening to this garbage? Well, I actually attended (laughs) your workshop, your structural equation modeling workshop, and you mentioned it. 
And so I stumbled upon it and also have had students, graduate students in my department who have, have raved about it. The one thing I, I will say that I so appreciate about what you're doing with this is really making statistics fun because I feel like for a lot of people, statistics is very intimidating and a serious topic. And I see that with students all of the time. And something I really try to work on with students is realizing that it can be fun and it is supposed to be a tool that you can use to answer your research questions. And so I appreciate that you bring that levity to talking about statistics. It's really enjoyable. That's very nice of you. Thank you for saying so. We're trying. All right. So since you've brought in a designated hitter, Patrick, to do our job oh, for come us. On. Oh, oh, gosh, I brought that up again. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Jeez. So sad. All right, let's mute him. Is it possible, Becca? Oh, I, may I call you Becca? Well, Greg, you're a Harry Potter fan, so I'm comfortable with you calling Absolutely. me Becca. Patrick, okay. we might have to wait and get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Patrick, named six types of brooms that are referred to throughout the Harry Potter series. Bushy, stubby, old, oh, no. new, fast, okay. and slow. <laughs> yep. Rebecca, it is. All right, so what I was hoping was that maybe, Becca, if you could guide us a little bit, in part because we haven't prepared at all, uh, but <laughs> throw out some questions for us that maybe we can respond to around creating a quantitative experience for people. Yeah, that sounds great. It's the kind of thing that friends would ask each other to do, right? Yes. But could I yeah, be okay. part of this anyway? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Don't nope. mute me. I'm in the middle of that. All right, Becca, you're in charge here. Okay, cool. So, so I reached out to Patrick and wanted to talk to him because I just finished my fifth year here at the University of Nebraska and have been providing mm -hmm. quantitative training in the department. I think that our department really values quantitative training. It's something that I really appreciate about our leadership in the department. And when I was hired, even though I'm affiliated with the clinical psychology training program, I actually was hired specifically to provide statistical training to teach the more advanced courses to graduate students. And then I have kind of a unique role in that I provide consultation to faculty and students, but I also get to use that as kind of a teaching buyout. So it's actually part of my teaching load, which is great because it means that I actually have time to really devote to that and I'm able to work with a lot of different people. So I feel like we have a really nice infrastructure in our department that I'm very grateful for. I also feel as though there's obviously limits on time because we don't have a formal quantitative training program. So we currently have two faculty who are available to provide quantitative training. And we just hired a new, brilliant, wonderful faculty member, Anna Jaffe, who's joining us in the fall. We're very excited to have her joining us. And she'll also be offering training. So we're up to three people, which is great. And we feel I feel very fortunate for that. However, there's just, I think, been a realization over the years that when you don't have that formal curriculum, when you have limited time and resources, how can you make sure that students are being exposed to the broad stats landscape so that they're aware of what the different methods and tools are that are available? And then what are the kinds of things that we should be prioritizing in our teaching? What are kind of the core fundamental tools that we want to have our students access? And then how can we build off of that? So that's kind of the things that I've been thinking about recently and was really excited mm -hmm. to be able to, to hear what your perspectives are on that. May I ask some background sure. questions? Yeah. What is the standard training that people go through? So our graduate students are all required to do a sequence their first year of grad school. And during that sequence, it's a, it's a fall and spring course. They cover ANOVAs, correlation, regression, kind of what we would consider our standard models. Our clinical program mm -hmm. requires an additional three credits and so an additional course. And so currently what we offer in the department is I teach structural equation modeling every spring semester, and then I offer multi-level modeling every fall semester. So I've been trying to offer that on a pretty routine schedule, given a lot of our students use those methods. Someone who is squeezing the most out of what you have to offer would have two years of quant stuff? Correct. Yep. And then actually my colleague, Cal Garvin, he also offers what he calls seminets over the summer, which are kind of one credit modules where he does deep dives on some of those more foundational core things like um, extensions on ANOVA and regression and things like that. I think we have a pretty good menu in our department. Um, and then we also have great courses being offered uh, across the university as well that students can take. And they're required to take or they just can be encouraged to take as part of some advisor's guidance? Yes, they're encouraged to take. Now, we do also offer a quantitative concentration, it's not a formal mm -hmm. um, major or minor, but it's a way for students mm -hmm. to kind of document their quantitative training. And it really encourages them to think critically about how they want to structure that. So that requires completing 18 credits of quantitative training, and then a comprehensive exam, which can look like a lot of different things. So it can be 
um, mm-hmm. an actual sit down exam, although I don't think anyone's requested that since I've been here, or they can just apply an advanced model as part of their dissertation. That's a very good start, I think, for me. Let me unmute Patrick. And so there anyway, I was in the middle of a yeah. sentence. Okay, that's enough. I, of no, don't. I- <laughs> Patrick, given what Becca has already oriented us to a little bit, is there a corner of this world that you think might be useful for us to start in? Because there's a lot of good stuff in there. There is a lot of good stuff. As a starting point, I am most impressed that you're embedded in a department that is supportive and respectful of quantitative. That is not always held across departments, mm-hmm. which surprises me a little at times. And the reason is... I feel like over the last five and ten years in particular, but there's an increasing expectation for quantitative sophistication at all levels of our science, whether it be in psychometrics, measurement, scoring, modeling, growth modeling longitudinal designs. When I came up through the system 103 years ago, you could pitch a grant to NIH that was cross-sectional. And now those are few and far between as longitudinal analyses are standard. And to have the ability to train and give research experiences to not only graduate students, but faculty themselves strengthens the entire scientific endeavor. And so sometimes it drives me a little nuts where in a particular department, you will come in and Anna will come in and people will say, oh, they're just new kids and they want to do these things. I think it's great that you're in a department that says, no, this is important to all of us. And so coming right out of the gates, that's a really wonderful place to start. I think the challenge then, and I'm telling you something that you're already deeply appreciative of, is how do you use limited resources Mm -hmm. to try to optimize how you're going about this endeavor. In terms of resources, the biggest resource that's lacking is just time, right? We all have so much on our plates as academics, and there are so many different things we're juggling. And certainly as a junior faculty member, getting my research program up and running and balancing mentorship and and other responsibilities within the department. There have been so many things that I've wanted to do, and I've had a lot of ideas of initiatives I've wanted to start. But at the end of the day, it's just really limited time and energy. And so if I didn't have the support that I have by the department, if I didn't have kind of protected time for consultation and that support to teach these courses, that would be even more challenging. So I have a lot of empathy for people who might be trying to do similar things in in programs where they might not have that kind of support. And it would cut into your Lego time. It would cut into my Lego time, which is not acceptable. Well, she needs to get Legos to build the Shire. That's Harry Potter, right? Oh, no, I was just going to say, Patrick, that you can start calling me Becca because you had a Lord of the Rings reference, but then you just, you ruined that. You're so close. But the hobbits are in Harry Potter, right? Oh, no. Oh, this is so painful. Oh, my God. So, Becca, now you understand what I deal with. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's excruciating. So one thing I will say that echoes sort of what Patrick was saying is the, the fact that there's a commitment to what it is you're doing is huge. Sometimes people with quantitative skills are viewed as whole fillers. We need someone to cover these classes. We need to make sure that some minimum training is being given to our students. And the fact that your program is committed to increasing the number of faculty who do that is huge for your program. And it's also huge for you. And I don't just mean that in terms of enhancing your ability now to get to your diagonally set, which you haven't even been able to unpack yet. It's part of a culture, right? It's very hard to have a culture of one or even two. To faculty. So as you have more of a critical mass of people who do these kinds of things, it means that you have a presence within the department and you are starting to signal that there is a cultural value associated with these things. And so the question is, how can we make the most out of what you currently have in your two, now three people? And how can we move you toward total world domination? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> total, total world, world domination. domination. Yep. I think one of the hardest things we're going to have to deal with is a clear flaw in Becca's personality, which I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Remember, I am originally trained as a clinical psychologist. We've established not a very good one. It's so wrong. We are going to have to wrestle with a critical flaw in her personality because in the Mm -hmm. short time we've talked 
she is clearly committed. She is clearly mm-hmm. dedicated. And mm-hmm. my guess is she is willing to invest significant amount of time beyond what she's supported for in the department to make things yeah. happen. And this is going to kill her because she also needs to be publishing. She also needs to be conducting research, doing her own training of her graduate students, and going for runs or walks or cow tipping or whatever you do at the University of Nebraska. <laughs> now, have you tried Becca cow tipping? Because I have. You don't have. Don't answer. Don't answer. You don't have to answer. I do, I'm that. speechless right now. I am a proud Midwesterner. I have lived in the Midwest my whole life, and I have never tipped a cow. <laughs> is it 15% or 20%? I don't know what the standard cow tipping rate is. <laughs> Other people maybe can weigh in, but I empirically tested this as a high school student, that cow tipping is an urban myth. And I don't know, Becca, if you've tried this or not. But for those of you who are not fortunate enough to be from the Midwest or West, cows sleep kneeling. The urban myth is, is because of how they sleep, you can sneak into the field. Usually it's done late at night, and usually it's after having consumed a six-pack of Coors Light. At least that's what it was in Colorado. That's a requirement to cow tipping is my... Exactly. And the rumor is, the urban myth is, is you can push the cow over and because they're on their knees, they will roll over on their side and that's cow tipping. And then you run away before they get up because turns out they don't like to be tipped at all and they get really pissed. Mm -hmm. I have on multiple occasions tried to tip a cow. And you might as well go like Subaru tipping because I have snuck up on a cow and pushed with multiple friends and that cow ain't going anywhere. I feel enlightened. Thank you. I feel like there was this mystery that's been following me my whole life and it's now been solved. So I really Uh appreciate that. Okay, Uh we got off. We need to keep focused on her character flaw. Let's not lose sight of the ball here. (laughs) Becca, let me ask a couple of questions to empirically support my identification of this fatal character flaw. You teach SEM and MLM every year. Correct. All right. Why do you do that? Um, Well, I think because I've observed students are really excited and interested in learning those techniques. And so um, being able to offer that on regular rotation is something that I have felt is important. Becca, how many people do you have in each of those classes during the semesters? I usually have around 16 people. And to give you a little more context around that, part of why I cap enrollment at that is because... There's a paper there's involved. There's a paper involved. God, exactly. Of course there yes. is. Bless your heart. There's, there's a, a paper, paper involved. involved. Yes. yes. Which... I saw that coming. I think uh-huh. students really appreciate, and I do think it's a wonderful training yes. opportunity, but also does require mm-hmm. a ton of time and investment. So there's a Bob Newhart skit from the (laughs) 70s where the woman presents with all of these psychological problems and to everything that she says, he leans over the desk and says, well, stop it. Just stop it. And that's the Mm -hmm. whole skit. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. You don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds frightening. Then stop it! Greg and I are going to do an intervention here. Okay. The final capstone projects, stop it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went through the same thing, I will tell you. And I do, and Patrick, you might tell me to stop this too. Um, I teach SEM every year, and I have about 32 students in it. And I used to do the full research project. I had presentation days. And you want to give them the richest research experience possible. You want them to take the tools that you're providing them and put them into immediate use to make those connections. That's exactly what we want to do as mentors. And it will kill you. One of the disappointing things about making this world of academia work is trying to find balances where you do compromise in some ways. So when Patrick says stop it, what he means is maybe we can find some other well-meaning balance for you. My compromise is conference posters. The students work by themselves or in pairs, and they use data that they have access to, and they make really nice conference posters. And then we have this awesome poster session on the last day of class. It's still a lot of work, but it's nothing like research papers. And for me, it's the right balance of my own sanity and trying to give them some reasonably authentic research experience. 
I like that idea a lot. That's very creative. A variant of that that I've used in place of an individual capstone project is to provide a large public access shared data file to all the students and allow them to work individually or in pairs to pick off the subsample and the set of measures that they find interesting. So there's still some personalization in the project, but there's a single shared mothership of data that forms the backbone of the project. Whatever you do, for me, it distills down to a simple issue of math. If you can do away with these very time-consuming final projects, replace it with whatever it is you view as giving them those kinds of experiences at the end of the class, but that requires less of your time, then you can double the number of kids in the class, teach the class every other year, and that opens up an entire academic year for you to bring in new classes into the curriculum or do a variety of other things to enhance quantitative training among the students. There is the potential to have, and what we call them as one credit add-ons, but there are a variety of different ways that you can do these things. And that is, let's say that someone has taken this version of an SEM course that has a lot of hands-on stuff, although it might not be completely embedded within their own area, their own data, and someone wants to take some next step. But when you have that handful of, of students who say, no, 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 I totally want to use this now. I want to do this with my own data. Then they take that one credit experience with you as a mentor, and then they try to flesh that out. And there you might be giving a bit more attention. And depending on the administrative structure that you have, oftentimes those kinds of things add up and count toward your own teaching load as well. I only bring that up because Patrick and I, we really care about your well-being here. I think we have the passion that you have to try to elevate the folks around you, and we're going to talk more about ways that I think that you can do that. But we really want you in this for the long haul. We don't want you to burn out. We don't want you to be the person who is working 60 hours a week. Well, I very much appreciate that. It's nice to kind of have a sense of shared experience with this. So acknowledging that we're all very passionate about what we do. We want to be able to give these tools to students. And I think that's a really nice reframe, you're using excellent clinical skills, Greg, of being able to look at this as what's a sustainable structure to the teaching? What's a sustainable curriculum that is going to make sure that I continue to have the energy to be able to provide all of these different training opportunities? Where we use the one-hour seminar is to drill down in more technical detail as to the broader topic that allows you to handpick the subset of students who really would like a deeper dive. I think there's an important distinction here, and that's the difference between a one-hour seminar and a one-hour independent study. The purely methodological or really methodologically focused seminar is a nice way to go farther down the iceberg to see that you're getting at some of the more foundational aspects. The thing that I was referring to is a more individual one-credit add-on where someone wants to take this material and fully form a project out of it and do it with some level of consultation from you. That for me was trying to allow you to retain the fraction of students who really do want to see it all the way through a project's culmination. I think this is really interesting and I love that I'm getting ideas for kind of different configurations. I think my one reservation with letting go of that capstone project is that I like that students get a chance to work with the messiness of their own data. Maybe that's just in my mind. Maybe that's not really a valuable experience. And I guess in reality, they still get to work with the messiness of their data in other contexts, right? So it doesn't have to necessarily be in the context of my class. But I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that just a little bit in terms of the utility of that. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Go ahead, go ahead, Patrick, because I'm I'm sort of aligned with Becca. Well, clearly it all started with the whole Hobbit thing or whatever the Muggle Hobbit thing. I mean, you I are an outsider. Ooh. Yeah, no, I, I have oh. clearly seen that. As oh. I thought, Becca, we had the cow tipping link. No. I completely support what you just said. The messiness of data, working one-on-one -on -one with people. But it just goes back to hours in the day. And that I think that you need to make concessions on some things to allow yourself to do something else. And Hancock's 
still, after nearly a year, doesn't realize I can see him on Zoom. And he is shaking his head and making his hand look like a quacking duck. Hancock, is there something that you would like to add (laughs) to this conversation? Um, I thought the head shaking and the quacking duck symbol with my hands really said it all. In the bigger picture, you're going to have to find balance somewhere. This particular local point may, may or may not be the place where you find that balance. For me, I could not let go of the individualization of the content that comes by some version of a project. I just feel differently about this being a corner that you cut than Patrick does, and that's fine. Let's play a game. Let's play guess how many masters and dissertation committees Becca is on. And I'm going to say... 21. Let's see. How long have you been there, Becca? Five years. I think you're not far off. I would say she's probably currently on 15 to 20. Becca, how many committees are you on? Um, I actually don't know the exact number, which is probably very telling. Um, say 16. Mm-hmm. Say 16. I, no, on, say I'm 16. pretty, I know it's more than 20. She is already doing one-on-one working with students in their milestone projects in the department. Mm -hmm. And to do that in class, I think, is a fool's errand. If your department has a formal requirement that a quantitative person needs to be on dissertation committees or master's thesis committees, that's BS. That should not happen. And that's not the case in our department, I should clarify. This is me volunteering. That's right. It's you being a caring individual by demonstrating that in how you interact with your classes, which you should not change, no matter what Patrick might say. Don't be a Patrick. <laughs> that is not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um, set up some kind of screening mechanism. What I will usually do is... When someone says, I'd really like you to be on my committee, I will say, you know, why is that? What do you anticipate your needs being? Well, I can do that with you just by having you come sit in my chair twice over the next year. You can tell me what you want to do. I'll tell you if that seems like a good idea, things to think about, and send you on your merry way. So there are mechanisms that you need to put in place to keep yourself from burning out, keep yourself from going crazy, to keep yourself from being taken advantage of for the kindly soul that you are. So, Greg, it pains me to say so, but I completely agree with you. Let's talk more pragmatics. You guys want to do that? Yeah. Let's do some problem solving. So we've agreed unambiguously to do away with the capstone project (laughs) and to not do the one credit hour research project. He's always like this. So now you double the class size. You do it every other year. One of the greatest rules to understand, Becca, as you're moving into your next phase in your career is never go to the chair with a request that's going to cost them money because they don't have money. Go to the chair with a request that reallocates existing resources because that doesn't cost cash on the barrelhead. So, for example, what the deal we struck at Carolina is my SEM and longitudinal SEM and Dan's multi-level modeling class, we put 35 students in. But the department, as a quid pro quo, provides a TA that helps us with the grading, helps us with the office hours. You know what I do is I do the lectures and have the TA do software demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And so one way to make this larger class more manageable is to say, can we have a TA line that can help support these advanced classes that allows me to double the side? Because again, the chair is going to want to know how's the department going to benefit and what is it going to cost me? All right, the cost is nothing. Just drag a TA over from one cell in a spreadsheet to another. How do they benefit? Well, by going to 30 people in a class, now you and Anna get to pick two additional classes to move into the rotation. Maybe it's a longitudinal class. Maybe it's a classical test theory or a measurement and scoring or factor analysis. Get the department to give you a TA because not only does that allow you to add two more advanced classes, but it's a great training opportunity for the student because they get this experience in teaching an advanced class that then they take with them. We're like a giant STD, right? Because if you have like a five-year window, you're putting those grad students out 
out in the world who now have a cognitive schema for how to do this themselves when they go into a department Mm -hmm. in your position. We're focused a little bit on teaching. We're focused a little bit on service in the classroom. We're focused a little bit on TAs to provide that. I think that what you can do transcends the classroom. And I think there are ways that you can try to create a culture. And I think you're already doing that in many ways by example. But a lot of ways you can create a culture where the learning that people get isn't just something that you have control over in this classroom or that particular experience. So I have sort of mentally a list of bullets of ways that you can help elevate the culture so that quantitative is coming at them from a variety of different places. And it's not all coming from you, which to me is absolutely key. So I want to look at this in a much broader context so that you are taken care of, so students are taken care of. And sometimes that involves the kinds of negotiations that Patrick's talking about. But for me, I'm thinking about it at a culture level. Yes, changing the culture is fundamental. That when a brand new first year grad student starts the program in the fall, they see that quantitative is just part of the fabric of the department and that it's not a one and done on the first year sequence. Taking SEM and MLM is part of what is expected. Having a more advanced analytic approach in a master's or a dissertation is what's expected. And I think that's singularly the most important driver. Why don't I just barf up a bunch of these things and then, Becca, you can react to some. Patrick, you can tell me why I'm wrong. Do you want me to start out with that or do you actually want to share the ideas first? It hasn't mattered before. It has Um, not. But places where people can get quantitative education, having a regular brown bag series is very nice when there are quantitative things. And the key is that you don't drive it. You might seed it, but other people start picking it up. Students present in it, you know, whether it's once a month or every other week or whatever, someone might present, hey, I just learned this method. I want to share it with people. Hey, I just read this cool article. I want to tell you about it. But you create this culture where people have this expectation that you're going to be talking about things. And you can have journal clubs where you meet every so often and pick an article and people discuss that together. There's something where if people take, was it 18 credits or something, they get some formal thing. I love that. I love that your university is formally recognizing that kind of concentration. One thing that we do here, in addition to we have what we call it a certificate, I have a program where very bright undergraduates whom we have targeted and who have an interest can take up to three of our graduate level courses while they are an undergraduate. Those credits can still count toward their undergraduate degree as an elective, but they can import those into a graduate program Um, I don't know if anything I've said so far, you want to, Patrick, you want to tell me it's wrong or Becca, you want to react to any of that? These are all really helpful suggestions. I've considered doing the brown bag in the past and my major reservation with that was exactly what you alluded to, which was where will I find the time for that? What would that, what would be involved with that in terms, terms of organizing? So I'm curious what your thoughts are about how can you make that a more manageable endeavor, essentially. We have a student organization in our program. It is an organization of quantitative method students. They have their own president, vice president, social chair, all of this stuff. They are having barbecues. They are having escape room nights. They are having their own professional development series where someone might come in and talk about crafting your Vita, or someone might come in and talk about a particular quantitative topic. They also help to coordinate a workshop series that I run here out of the University of Maryland. So they are so deeply wedded to the culture that we have here. We have a informal mentoring system among our quantitative students where people who are more senior in their quantitative training are buddied up with people who are more junior so that people have these big brothers and sisters who are ahead of them and they can see the things that are coming down the pike. I put students in charge of these brown bag things. I put students in charge of these journal club things. They have to take root there because otherwise everyone looks to you for what we're doing next. 
And you can't do that. But if students are doing those things, then when the new crop of students come in, they go, wow, look what these students are doing. I guess that's what it means to be a student here. I guess that's what we're supposed to be doing. So for me, the culture starts at the students. And when Patrick talks about this being an STD, that means that when those people graduate and they go out to the places where they are, they're going to start seeding that student culture also. And I think that's what makes it most nicely contagious in that way. So put things on students not in a way that uses them, but that gives them leadership over what they're doing. When you can step back and watch it, then you know that you've done something right. So I I think it's critical to empower the students in this. And I enthusiastically endorse that. How we do it is we have a weekly quantitative series, and there's a faculty coordinator. The coordinator identifies a grad student. Often it's their own grad student, but sometimes not. A lot of it does fall on the grad student to help organize other grad students. Faculty can discuss their research. As Greg alluded to, it's a wonderful place to do professional development issues. Mm -hmm. Where do grad students get this information? Is somehow we feel like a first-year grad student comes in and somehow magically they know how grant review works or an article review works. And I became a much happier faculty when I realized that a first-year grad student is a fifth-year undergrad, Mm -hmm. that nothing magic happened over the summer that somehow made them different than when they were a senior in their spring semester. Here's another thing to consider. There's strength in numbers. You don't have to do this alone in your department. So you have a strong ed psych department on campus, and you have some notables who have gone through. So Lisa Hoffman went through your own department, and Craig Enders went through ed psych. There's a history of very strong quant in those areas. Reach out and coordinate with another department on campus where you can share resources, do it together. And not only in a quantitative brown bag, but I would say puzzle through even formalizing it more in course provision. We left off with double the class size, lose the capstone, get a TA and offer MLM and SEM every other year. Coordinate with other departments and say, look, if we offer MLM and SEM on even numbered years, can you offer test theory and longitudinal or factor analysis or whatever on odd numbered years? And we can jointly offer these four advanced courses. And your requirement for the concentration is they have to have a minimum of two advanced classes in psychology, Mm -hmm. but they can have two from other units on campus. You can pool limited resources and hit a critical mass to achieve what you want to achieve. I think that's a really great suggestion. And I feel fortunate because we do have a lot of really strong courses that are being offered in statistics outside Mm -hmm. of our department. And I know certainly in order to meet that 18 credit requirement, students often do seek that out. So I I think that's great. And I also think that it speaks to being exposed to different perspectives. And so one of the things I talk about when I teach my classes is that I teach my classes from a very applied perspective. We spend a lot of time talking about theory and how that gets applied to your model building and kind of walk through the full stage up to how do we actually write Mm -hmm. this up for publication. And so in doing that, I don't necessarily get to dive into all of the background of some of the models that we go over. And then I tell students, If that's what you're looking for, if you want to be able to dive in more deeply on these models, we have these really great other classes on campus that you can go to. And so I do think that there's complementary information that's provided, and it does result in a more comprehensive training opportunity for students. I like that a lot, not thinking that you have to invent everything on your own here or do it all by yourself, uh, especially at a, a wonderful campus like you're at. There are a couple of other things I'll just throw out there, if that's okay. Um, One thing I instituted a number of years ago, and maybe you have something similar, but we have an annual research day where students in quant must present a research paper. Every spring, we have a full conference-style day set aside where students will give 12-minute presentations with moderator, the whole thing. Throughout the year, that is part of the culture. Students are saying, oh, do you think that this might become your research day project? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I'm working on it. I'm thinking about presenting it. It also aligns with our other goals for students to be able to present research on the outside. For us, that's partly just seeding the culture and helping people understand what the expectations are. And I will tell you, 
it is just the greatest day ever seeing our own students up there. It's not like they just show up in shorts and a t-shirt. We tell them, no, you're going to treat this like you are out there in front of the leaders in your field and you're going to do your best shot. And the best part for me is watching students go from the first year (laughs) to the second year, to third year, fourth year, and see how much better they get in terms of the quality of questions and things that they do. The other things that I will mention just on a slightly different tack, this gets at what Patrick was saying about reaching out elsewhere on your campus. But this has to do with what kinds of resources and needs you might have outside of the university. I have the benefit of being in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And what that means is that you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a research agency here in the Beltway area. And they have all kinds of needs. And so what I have done is struck up different partnerships with agencies in the area where they will fund one of our graduate students in the form of an assistantship. And I might then put students in an agency like Association of American Medical Colleges or Center for Applied Linguistics, where our students are doing hands-on psychometric-related work or hands-on research things. And the nice thing is that a number of our graduates are thinking about careers in those areas. So I get to give them those kinds of training wheels, those in-environment internships so they can experience that. You can also set up consulting kinds of experiences. When you have people, whether it's on your campus or in the nearby community who have particular research needs, what you can do is you can arrange it so that your own students, with some oversight from faculty, absolutely, people come in and pitch their research questions, the challenges that they're having, and you sit around and brainstorm, help guide them, and then ultimately you try and get rid of them unless they want to then write you all into a grant, write some of the students into a grant, etc. So there are ways to try to partner with other people around their very specific research needs and the expertise that you have. We even have a formal class in our program on consultation, where as part of that class, they partner with faculty and agencies in need, where they work on solving those problems. I like all of those ideas. We have at Carolina, and Becca, this goes back to the don't cost your chair money. We have an in-house stats consultant that's a senior graduate student that Mm -hmm. works as a TA line. And it's a wonderful resource because it's great training for the student and it is wonderful support for the faculty and grad students. And again, this is the freeing hours in the day for you to do other things. This gets people out of your office. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes in and says, well, my data's in Y format, but my advisor says it has to be in long so I can do a multi-level model. What does that mean? It's just nice having a firewall is to say, well, Noah's the consultant this year Mm -hmm. and he can help you with that. The one that I resonate to is think creatively about outside sources of funding. So NIH, NSF, IES, they all have different mechanisms. Some are bigger than others, right? The granddaddy of them all is the NIH T32 program and those are massive endeavors and I hate it when faculty say, oh, nobody ever gets those. Don't try to apply. It's like, well, I guarantee you're not going to get a T32 if you don't apply for one. That gives long-term funding where it provides pre-doctoral fellowships, possibly post-doctoral fellowships. T32s are remarkable. But you can also pick off lower-hanging fruit. And so almost every funding agency has some small funds available for topical conferences. So not only NIH, NSF, IES, but also APA, SRCD, Society for Research on child development, you can get $10,000 or $20,000 to do a a one-time topical conference. Mm -hmm. Think big, right? The Nebraska Consortium on Quantitative Methodology. Get a $20,000 grant from APA and bring in experts around some theme. That's what Linda Collins did with the new methods for the study of change, something like that. I'm forgetting Mm -hmm. the exact one, but that was an APA conference. It led to an edited book. It's just like throwing beans in a pile is do a one-day conference, grow it into a three-day conference. It's one of those exponential where the more you grow, the more you grow. Mm -hmm. Take a five-year 
time horizon on it because you're going to be in that beautiful little office I see right now on Zoom in five years. Envision where you want to be in 60 months and they're all little baby steps that accrue over time. Yeah, I expect more Legos in in 60 Definitely months. Definitely more Legos. I will continue to add to my Lego collection, I promise. I realize that it's typical of Quanticamp that we do wander all over Hell's Half Acre. Mm-hmm. Becca, you've been very patient in letting us mostly just disagree with one another and make fun of one another. Mm-hmm. Do you have any overarching thoughts about the conversation up to here of thinking that when we're done, Greg and I get to go do our own thing, but now you have to do this. What are your reactions? My initial reaction is that my gears are definitely turning. I feel like you've provided a lot of new, very innovative suggestions, things to consider. I'm definitely thinking about how to make all the puzzle pieces sort of fit together and how that's going to work for our program, given our program's needs. So I very much appreciate you providing such thoughtful feedback. I think the one burning question that I have and something that I've really thought deeply about and have experienced as somewhat of a challenge over the past few years is that, again, in this acknowledgement that the statistics landscape is quite vast, right? So We have sort of these foundational models that we've been talking about today, but there are so many cool new things that are becoming, you know, cutting edge that you can use in focused ways. And it's not going to apply to everyone necessarily. We have students who are interested in network analysis. We've been doing some network analysis in our own lab. Bayes estimation, machine learning. Increasingly, we've had students who are interested in getting more data visualization experience in the R software package. And so I have students coming to me kind of one-on-one, uh, talking to me about these different interests, and it can feel very overwhelming because obviously, you know, we can't provide everything. I think I have two questions. One is, in your opinion, what are kind of the fundamental things we should be covering? And then two, in terms of sort of those interests and those other techniques, what are the kind of creative ways that we can be providing that training to people? I think you have to balance core curriculum with what your available expertise is. The core ones that I see beyond the first year sequence include already what you have, SEM and MLM, some variant of a measurement course, classical test theory, factor analysis as a third class. And then the fourth one is in whatever form it takes a class on longitudinal data analysis, research design and analysis, because that's simply becoming, I think, across many, many areas as just a synchronon with current research is longitudinal. So those would be my four core courses, MLM, SEM, measurement, and longitudinal. The other thing is that quant is a moving target. It always is, and I and I hope it is. But you have to be careful not to drive yourself crazy thinking that you have to be the source of knowledge for every single thing that comes up, whether it's social network models or Bayesian estimation. Here are a couple of models. One is to bring people to campus in the form of research workshops. So one of the things I think Patrick probably does, I know that I've done it, give workshops in small groups, larger groups, huge groups, where I come in and train people intensively for two, three, four, five days. You might say, you know what, let's bring in someone to talk with us about machine learning methods for two days. Let's bring someone in like a Tracy Sweet, who's awesome in social network models, bring her in to talk about that with us. And you might find that it's something that needs to be grown and nurtured beyond that exposure, or maybe that's enough. One thing that we will do is that we will offer these sort of experimental seminar topics where we will say, all right, we have a faculty member who's kind of interested in playing around with in some readings in this particular topic with a small group of students who want to do that. So let's let's try that out. Maybe that's something that takes root and we decide to later introduce that into our curriculum. We have Bayesian estimation as a course that's offered annually, but that was something that we experimented a little bit with and continued to bring in. So a combination of people from the outside and maybe trying to see which things need to take root in your area on the inside might be a way to try to provide things. And there's just so much good stuff out there online also now. This year, workshops have had to (laughs) switch to online formats to stay alive. And you might be able to find ways to participate in those kinds of things as a special group or bring in someone virtually to try to do things with your group. And then on top of that, I would add 
something that I feel is really important, which is part of graduate training in my eyes is teaching people how to learn. You're not responsible for telling them what network analysis is or Mm -hmm. Bayesian analysis is. You can think about in these foundational topics are laying down the bricks on which they then in their own guidance, their own accord, their own motivation, navigate out and read a psych methods article, watch a YouTube video, download a worked example, and figure it out on their own. Because Mm -hmm. that's also a professional development skill that we all do, right? All three of us, if we open a new issue of psych methods and Chris Preacher has some new multi-level SEM, well, nobody's going to teach us that. Mm-hmm. We got to pour a cup of coffee and sit down and learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's a professional development skill for graduate students to be able to seek out their own training. We can support it in the way that Greg describes. I completely support all the ideas that he has. But in the same token, it's another for me culture issue mm-hmm. is it drives me crazy when grad students say there's not a class in that. Well, nobody taught me how to do that. And you're earning the highest degree in the land. So how about if you figure this stuff out on your own? When you put the onus on the students, and that was a theme of what I had culturally earlier, but also when I do independent studies with students, they are responsible. They have to go consume the literature, can learn a bit about the methods, and then come in and have to explain these things to me. I learn things from them. They learn about learning the material, putting it together in a coherent fashion. And one of the really cool things for me is that there are students out there now who are teaching courses in the material that was developed as part of the independent study that just sat in my office where each week they would explain to me the next piece, the next piece. It's just a very tricky needle to thread of what is your responsibility in teaching to the students and what is the student's responsibility for exposing themselves on their own. It's tricky Because you also don't want this more old school model, which is the student is expected to learn everything on their own, because that's not beneficial. But we also have a professional responsibility to prepare students to navigate their future when they're not a graduate student. That is a skill to have, is Mm -hmm. to say, I need to go out and learn as much as there is to know about multi-level structural equation modeling, Because this came up in a faculty meeting and I'd like to have coffee with a colleague of mine. That's a skill to have. But I am looking at the shot clock. We are at more than double our (laughs) usual time. And Becca, it is because this has just been absolutely charming and fun and interesting. And we are so glad that you were willing to be part of this endeavor. Yeah. Well, I sincerely thank you for taking the time to do this because I feel like sometimes it feels a little bit like being on an island. And so... Um, Because, you know, I'm sitting thinking through these issues on my own and just to honestly be able to talk about it with both of you has been incredibly helpful. And I have no doubt that there'll be other people listening to this who are in a similar boat as me and will really value this, this feedback. So thank you for taking the time to do it. It's our pleasure. And remember, it's a whole community that we're in, right? Not just the one that you have there, but also there are a lot of people with these kinds of experiences. So I hope that you will choose to reach out to us, of course, but also to other people who have good suggestions too. Well, and we can check back with you in a year Mm -hmm. and see what you were able to accomplish with Anna and your other colleagues, because it's exciting. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, again, a year is going to go by and it will be interesting to see where you are. Also, be patient. There's a class I should know who it is. It's a political philosopher, but that politics is the slow boring of holes through hardwood. You chalk up little wins at a time and build on those. Greg, another thing to highlight too Mm -hmm. is I think our disagreement on a number of topics reflects that there is not one size fits Mm -hmm. all and that you have to balance What are the characteristics of your department? What is the buy-in? Who are your colleagues? What available time do you have? Because certain ideas may work and others don't, and you need to customize those to your own setting. Absolutely. And what we say here may or may not work. So treat it like an a la carte 
you know, well, we used to have buffets. I don't know if we're ever going to have buffets again. It's a huge disappointment as I age into my golden years. If the Golden Corral is not going to be around, I don't know what the heck's going to happen here. Well, and that sketchy restaurant you took me to when I visited once, it was maybe the best Indian food I've ever had in my life. But also, Uh there's no way that there was any inspection process going on at that point. No, that's what makes it so, so good, Patrick. It was so Um, good. Yeah. Um, Anyway, please treat what we have as, you know, a la carte and ignore anything we have to say. Make it work for you. Adapt it. And then just reach back out to us and let us know how we can can help you further. Yeah, I would love to be able to do that. I think that would be great. And I think that something that I'm taking away from this conversation is that part of it is just trying these things out, right? So if it doesn't work out, I'll get that feedback. I'll make adjustments. But to kind of have the the courage, I guess, to step out of my comfort zone and try doing Mm -hmm. things differently than I have been doing them and being open and receptive to feedback and making adjustments. And so I think it would be a really cool opportunity to come back around and kind of talk about what's worked and what hasn't worked as they make some of these adjustments. You have two assignments that we're going to check in with you at some point in the future. One is enhancing quantitative training in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska. And two, were you able to successfully tip a cow? (laughs) I may be failing at least part Mm -hmm. of that assignment, but Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens, I guess. Coors Light optional. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we hope you have a pleasant and safe week. Take care. Thanks, Becca. Hi, I'm Mike. Welcome to Our Wyoming Life, where each week we get a chance to explore the ranch life and escape the ordinary. A year ago, almost to the day, I tried to tip a cow. I'd never done it, which is probably why many people said I did it wrong. By the way, from what I've read and been told, alcohol plays a huge part in most of the folklore and oddities we're going to talk about today. Just keep that in mind. So back to cow tipping. You have to catch a cow sleeping in order to tip them over. And that's kind of hard to do since a cow that's sleeping is already tipped over and lounging around. Now it's time for some math. I hate math, but sometimes math can help us out. Force equals mass times the gravitational force times the angle of the lever times the length of the lever from the center of mass divided by the total length of the lever. The cow weighs 1,500 pounds. All the math gives us 1,360 newtons of force required to get her past the tipping point which means that we need at least two people about my weight to push the cow over. But herein lies the problem. Bambi is a living creature and not a statue. Once we can even start to get her off balance, she's gonna take a step away and I end up the one tipped over. Maybe that's the whole point. Maybe it's not us cow tipping. Maybe it's cows people tipping. (laughs) 